So keep your eyes on Jesus if you want to keep from going crazy. Keep your eyes on Jesus if you want to keep from going crazy. Because if you're like me, you spend too much time dwelling on issues and people and situations and circumstances. And before you know it, you've chewed your fingernails down to your elbows. You've pulled your hair out and paced the floor all the way to Panicville. And if you're like me, when you do that, it makes you go crazy. You lose your mind when you meditate on situations and problems and fears. You lose your peace of mind. And so what is the remedy? How do we keep from going crazy when life is so overwhelming? Answer, look to Jesus. Look to the one who sits enthroned above the heavens. Look to the one who is sovereignly orchestrating every detail of your life. Turn your eyeballs upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And what will happen when you turn your eyeballs upon Jesus? Well, according to the lyrics of that song, the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. They will. When you fix your eyes on Jesus, your problems will dim. Now, to be sure, your problems and sufferings and troubles will come back, maybe even brighter than before. But you just start the process all over again. You turn your eyeballs upon Jesus once again. And that's what Paul wants the Colossians to do. So turn in your Bibles to Colossians Paul wants the Colossians to pray something like Jonathan Edwards prayed and say, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That's our passage today in a nutshell. Stamp or tattoo eternity in my eyes. Let's look at it. Turn your eyeballs to Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now, when Paul says, if, if you have been raised with Christ, he's not doubting the salvation of the Colossians. In Greek, this is a particular kind of conditional clause that assumes something is true for the sake of the argument. So Paul is not questioning their salvation at all. He's saying, if you are in union with Christ, and I know you are, then this is what you should do. This is what you should think about. Again, this is union with Christ's language, that we are connected to him by faith. We died when he died. We rose with him, we ascended with him, and we reign with him right now in the heavenly places. Now, that's remarkable when you consider who we are and how we act. But we currently sit with Christ in heavenly places. Because we are in him in one sense, we are already in heaven with him. Now, yes, we are here right now in California, but because we are united to Christ by faith, we are also at God's right hand because Jesus is at God's right hand. In other words, where Jesus goes, we go. Where Jesus is, we are. And if that doesn't flabbergast the socks off of you, I don't know what will. 
Where Jesus is, we are because we are in union with him. And that just might make your Thursday afternoon this week a little bit more tolerable. So since the Colossians have been raised with Christ because they are in union with him, then the natural thing would be for them to what? Seek the things that are above. But what does Paul mean when he says to seek the things that are above? It's just another way of saying, seek Jesus, long for him, look to him, seek him out. Sort of like what the prophet Jeremiah told the nation of Israel when they were in exile. I'm going to read the verses that directly follow that verse that gets quoted all the time. You know, the one that says, I know the plans I have for you to give you a future and a hope. You've got to keep reading the rest of the verses. This is what Jeremiah 29, 12-14 says, following the often quoted verses. It says, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. So when we seek the things that are above, when we seek God, we will find him when we seek him with all our heart. Isn't that wonderful? God, the triune God, can be found by us. And it isn't a game of hide and seek as if Jesus were hiding from us. God is saying, my door is always open. You don't have to check in with my secretary to make an appointment. You can just walk in. You can just drop by. Isn't that wonderful? So here in Colossians, Paul is saying, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Seek the lover of your souls. Don't get bogged down with to-do lists and a bunch of man-made rules. And I think that's the things of earth that Paul is talking about here, what we saw last week. All those rules and regulations that Christians come, with, come up with. You can't drink this, you can't drink that, you can't do that, you can't. Paul's saying, don't focus on those things. Those are earthly rules, man-made rules. Instead, seek the things that are above. Remember what we saw last week, the Colossians were being told by some false teachers that were creeping into their church that they had to watch what they ate, watch what they drank. It was a bunch of do this, don't do that, don't drink, don't cuss, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do. They were being told that what matters most is keeping all the rules, most of which aren't in the Bible. It was all legalism and self-righteousness like the Pharisees that Jesus dealt with. To them, all that mattered was that you told the line, kept all the rules, and didn't watch rated R movies or go to dances or listen to rock and roll. That's the things of earth, I think, that Paul is talking about. All these man-made rules that we tend to fixate on instead of looking to our Savior. Listen, if your focus is on keeping the rules, towing the line, making sure you don't upset anyone, living in the fear of man, and being a people pleaser, it will drive you crazy. I think that's what Paul's trying to keep from happening. Paul knows that living in the fear of man, fearing what other people think of you, and being a people pleaser will suck the joy out of your life. It will keep you from enjoying your Savior And ultimately, it will drive you nuts. You'll lay in bed at night, rehearsing all the things you said to someone. You had a conversation with someone. You'll lay in bed at night thinking, I can't believe I said that. I wonder what they think about me. You'll fear they won't like you anymore. So then you go and you try to please people all the time. 
that will make you go crazy and you won't enjoy Jesus. So Paul is saying at the start of chapter 3 that the Colossians simply need to keep their eyes on Jesus, the one they love, and not rules and to-do lists and the fear of man and people-pleasing. I suppose the Old Testament way of saying this might be Psalm 23, Psalm 73, 23 to 26, which says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I think this passage might be floating around in Paul's brain as he writes this paragraph. Whom have I in heaven but you? This is why we seek the things that are above. This is why we set our minds on things that are above and not things here below because Jesus is there, the one whom our soul loves. We turn our thoughts, we turn our hearts to the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, Galatians 2.20. Listen, the human heart just naturally moves toward the thing that is loved, right? Lovers think about their lover. Lovers want to be with their lover, spend time with them, just be around them. And so our hearts should move toward and long for Jesus, the one we adore. And what causes our hearts to long for him? It's his longing heart for us. What does John say? 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. We love Jesus. We long for him because he first loved us. We think of him because he first thought of us. So our minds should drift to the one who first loved us. That's what Paul says in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. I think this setting your mind business has two components. Number one, it's setting your heart or your affections on Jesus. And number two, it's setting our minds on him, thinking about him, who he is, what he is like. It's our heart and our thoughts that should be preoccupied with Jesus. Now, of course, we're not really good at either of these, are we? We are easily distracted by false lovers our darling sins, our precious idols. Our hearts drift all the time, and yet, God still loves us. We are so fickle, and he still loves us. I mean, that's crazy. He's so merciful. He's so kind. He's so gracious. He's so, I'm not gonna give you what you deserve. And we know we deserve it. And that's crazy, isn't it? Commenting on God's crazy love for us, Ian Duguid says this, The more we meditate on this crazy, dazzling, forgiving love for us, the more our love will be stirred toward him. Many Christians functionally view a relationship with God in the way traditional cultures view arranged marriages. We acknowledge that we need the Lord. Someone has to protect and provide for us in this world. So we do the necessary chores that go with that relationship. We read our Bibles. We obey more or less the Christian rules. We go to church. But we are not dizzyingly, dazzlingly captivated by the Lord. 
We're not rearranging our lives daily so that we can arrange a chance meeting with him. We are not writing him love notes and embarrassing our friends because we constantly gush about the beauty of our beloved. We are not waiting and longing for the day of his appearing. We have lost our first love for Christ. What is wrong with us? The answer is that we have lost sight of his great love for us. We have taken our eyes off just how much we have been forgiven. In the midst of the busyness and pressures of life, studying and writing papers, meetings and memos, laundry and childcare, we have missed Jesus. Yet each week as we come to church, the Lord invites us again into his house of wine. He, doesn't, he does so not so that he can launch into his litany of all the ways in which we have failed him this week, but so that he can unfurl the banner of his love over us again and say to us, wow, you are beautiful, you are unique, one of a kind, I love you. As we come to worship, we're invited to see again just how beautiful a Savior Jesus is, just how brightly he shines. It is no surprise that we fail to love Jesus as we ought. It is no surprise that we fail to love one another as we ought. The surprise is that he nonetheless loves us in a totally unexpected, undeserved, and overwhelming way that washes away all our sin and shame and that will never let us go throughout eternity. Now, that ought to flabbergast the socks right off of you. If that doesn't stir your heart, what will? What crazy, dazzling, forgiving love he has for us. Have you thought about that lately? Have you thought about the way you've been living and the way you've treated people? Have you thought about the thoughts that go on in your head that no one else knows about? And Jesus still loves you with this amazing, forgiving love? Of course, we are not good at this whole seek the things above, set your minds business, are we? We don't easily set our affections on him. Our hearts drift all the time. It takes work to set our minds on the things that are above. It takes work to remember who Jesus is and what he is like. But instead of thinking about him, if you're like me, we tend to obsess about irritating, fear-fueling stuff. Or we obsess over people and situations over which we have zero control. Those are the things that typically occupy our hearts and minds. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I give people and situations power that they don't have. I dwell on them. And as I do, they grow bigger and bigger and bigger. And I make them seem so powerful in my mind, as if somehow they're even more powerful than King Jesus. I crown them king. I crown my fears, my worries, my anxieties, my problems, or people and situations, and I give them power as if they had power over King Jesus. I live in stress and fret and despair, thinking that they are calling the shots. And now you know why I need a sabbatical, don't you? I live thinking all these situations, all the stuff going on in my head and in my heart, I live as if they are calling the shots of my life. Well, Benji Magnus, they are not calling the shots. Sometimes you have to stop mid-sermon and preach to your own heart. 
And sometimes you have to stop yourself in the middle of all this crazy thinking and remind yourself that Jesus is reigning right now over everything. We just sang it. He is Lord of all. I hope when you sang that, you remembered he is Lord of all. I hope you just didn't sing it, Lord of all. Jesus is better, Lord of all. I hope you sang it and you thought he's Lord over everything happening in my life. He is king over everything in creation, and that's why we need to seek him. It's why we need to set our eyes and set our minds upon him, because he is in control of every human heart, every situation, every relationship, every child, every church, every government, every workplace, every nation, every planet, every galaxy, every molecule. Should I keep going, or do you catch my drift? That means then that nothing happens in this world unless it comes across the desk of Jesus. Nothing gets past Jesus. No angel ever slides up close to Jesus and whispers in his ear, "Uh, Lord, we have a situation we need to tell you about. Jesus knows everything and is orchestrating everything in his creation for your good and for his glory. Now, of course, that won't necessarily answer all your why questions, will it? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? The providence of God may not answer all your why questions, but it can calm your heart. It can talk you down from the ledge. It can keep you from chewing your fingernails down to your elbow. It can keep you from going crazy. In those moments... When you wonder, why is this happening? Why did that happen? In those moments, you can simply say, in faith, I don't know why, but I know he's wise. I don't know why this happened. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why all these whys I have, but I know that he is wise. And if you want, you could get all theologically fancy and say it this way. I don't know why, but I know he's omnisapient. That's the big theological way of saying that God is all wise. So you may not get all your whys answered, but you can remind yourself that he is wise, and therefore you can trust him and his plan for your life. So what Paul is really asking the Colossians to do here is to read the world with a Christ as king lens or Christ as king glasses. Look through everything with the Christ as king, Christ reigning as king glasses to set their minds on the fact that Jesus is king. So we must learn to read the newspaper and watch the news and scroll through Instagram with a Christ as king lens. That's how we must see the world or we will go crazy. Listen, if you don't constantly set your mind on the fact that Jesus is reigning right now as king of the universe, you will go crazy. If you don't get Colossians 3, Christ is seated at the right hand of God into your bloodstream, you'll lose your marbles. We must learn to read the world and read the word with a Christ as king lens must go to work with Christ as king glasses on. Jesus is king and all is going according to his plan. Nobody is messing up his to-do list. This world is governed by a very meticulous providence. Our king reigns. 
No matter what happens in this world, he is in control and nothing slips past him. So whatever's happening in your life, you need to learn to begin to see it through a Christ as king, Christ seated at the right hand of God kind of lens. See, your problems, your trials, your circumstances, your suffering through Christ as king glasses. He reigns over all. He has the power to heal to change, to redeem, to restore in his time and in his way, if he wills. Ralph Davis said, Because the universe is held in a nail-scarred hand, I am kept from going crazy. And that seems to call for worship. There's something about knowing that Jesus holds the universe in his nail-scarred hand that draws worship out of your heart, which in turn just might keep you from going crazy when your whole world has gone crazy. And has not our world gone crazy? Think about where we're at in 2023. Ten years ago, if you would have told us this is what's going to be happening in your culture with gender and marriage and politics and all these, if you would have told us ten years ago this is happening, we'd be like, I'm not, I don't believe you. Our world has gone crazy. And if that's all you think about how crazy our world has gone, you will go crazy. You have to turn your eyes to Jesus. I don't know why he is allowing the things in our culture to take place. I have no idea. But I know he's smarter than I am. And I trust him. He is in control. So keep your eyes on Jesus if you want to keep from going crazy. Sometimes to keep myself from going crazy... I like to read my favorite portion out of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's the first paragraph of chapter 5, titled, Of Providence. It says this. This this recalibrates my heart every time I read it. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least... By his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Everything from the greatest to the least is governed by his most wise and holy providence. That recalibrates me. That calms me. That talks me down from the ledge, if you will. It helps me seek the things above and not obsess about earthly things. It reminds me that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It doesn't mean that I don't go through these things and panic and freak out and have all these thoughts. I do, but by His grace at some point, maybe after a few hours, maybe after a few days, maybe after a few weeks, He will settle me again with something like this. And then I start the process all over again and start chewing my fingernails and pacing the floor. But I always end back here. And that's part of what it means to seek the things above. We are to think about who Jesus is and what he is like. We are to dwell on his attributes. We are to read his word. Not try to figure everything out. We're not Columbo, okay? Christians are notorious for trying to understand everything that is happening in their lives. We do this, don't we? Oh, there must the, the, I got to figure out the purpose, the reason why. We're notorious for trying to understand every single thing that happens in our lives. We think we 
somehow have to understand everything about our faith if our faith is to be genuine. But that's not true because there are many, many, many things that we don't understand about God and his word and how he works in this world. There are many, many, many areas of mystery. So we have to learn to trust what we don't understand. We have to learn to trust what we don't understand about God. I just started reading a book this last week with a great title by Christopher Wright called The God I Don't Understand. We have to learn to trust the God that we don't understand when he does things that we don't understand. In those moments when we don't understand, we have to think, well, what do I do know about him? I don't know what he's doing, why he's doing this, but what do I know about Jesus right now for sure from his word? And you just go through his attributes. We do call it faith after all, right? It's faith, trust. And on that final day when Christ appears in glory, then we'll see, we'll understand, we'll have ultimate perspective that will lead to worship. Understand this, worship gives us perspective. That's why we sing on Sunday morning. When we worship, when we set our minds on things above, when we seek the things that are above, namely Jesus, it gives us the perspective that we need. And we get glimpses of that now here every Sunday when we gather with our family, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We gather together to worship Jesus and to hear his word, to hear him speak to us from his word. And that gives us perspective. Have you experienced this before? Maybe you came in, you were downcast, depressed, stressed out, full of despair. You came in here and you sang truth. You sang theology. You sang doctrine. You sang what you know is true about Jesus. And then your heart was recalibrated. You sang about God's crazy, dazzling, forgiving love for you. And then you felt your heart being stirred toward him. That's, that's church. That's Sunday morning. So make worship at Grace on Sunday a priority. Don't be late. I know if you have kids, it's hard. I get it. Okay? And I know that there are people who are perpetually late. I get it. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize that personalities play a very real significant role in discipleship and sanctification. Some people are always late and they're always going to be late. That won't be changed until the new earth. Okay, I get that. But in general, try not to be late. Get here early because you might miss that one song that your heart needs. The one that reminds you that you're hidden in Christ, safe and secure. You might hear that one song that your soul needs that reminds you about King Jesus. Worship gives us perspective, but it also stabilizes us. As Alec Motier said, the vision of the enthroned God is the great stabilizing factor in life. There's something about seeking the things above, setting our minds on things that are above that stabilizes us when we are about to lose our minds. But there's even more truth in our passage that can stabilize us and keep us from going crazy. Look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. As we have seen over the past few weeks, we died when Jesus died on the cross. We died with him on the cross. The cross was our judgment day. Our judgment day happened 2,000 years ago. 
And now we are hidden with Christ in God. Well, what does that mean? Well, to be hidden means to be safe and secure and out of reach. I think Paul maybe has Psalm 27 in mind here. Verse 5, which says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. The Hebrew word translated here as shelter in the ESV is used of a lion's lair or a lion's den in Psalm 10 and Jeremiah 25. So I prefer translating Psalm 27.5 this way, for he will hide me in his lair in the day of trouble. Now think of that. If Jesus, the Lion of Judah, hides you in his lair, who and what do you have to fear? If you're hidden with Christ in God, hidden in his lair, hidden in the den of the lion of Judah, who do you have to fear? No one. We don't have to fear our culture, what might happen to the church or to Christians. Because you are a baby cub of the lion of Judah. You are safe in his lair, safe in his den. I mean, just imagine stumbling into a lion's den. How do you think that mama lion is going to respond when you walk into her home and try to come near her babies? You're not going to make it out alive. Right? Hey, food was delivered. Pizza was delivered tonight, is what they'll say. How much more then will Jesus respond with his strong, protective care for us, his little cubs? He is our refuge. We are hidden in our lion's den of safety, our stronghold. The New Testament way of saying that is there. We are hidden with Christ in God. Or you could say we are in union with him. Then Paul says that Christ is our life. I think he has another Old Testament passage in mind here too. Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20, which says this. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. He is your life. Christ is our life. Which is why Paul will segue in the next section of Colossians, we'll look at next week, to talking about putting sin to death and putting on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and love. I mean, why put sin to death and why put on all these spirit-derived qualities? Answer, because Christ is our life. Therefore, like Deuteronomy 30 says, we do what? Because he's our life, we, we love him, we obey his voice, we hold fast to him because he is our life. And then Paul says, when Jesus appears, guess what? We will appear with him in glory. That ought to make you shout glory. When Paul mentions Jesus appearing, he has in mind the public nature of his appearing. He will be visible to all. He will appear in glory and in majesty. And then Paul drops two little words, you also. You also are some of the most beautiful words in Scripture that you've probably read a hundred times and you never slowed down enough to really think about it. You should trip over those words, you also. You also will appear with him in glory. We too will appear with him in glory. Wow. What's our culture going to think then? Ooh, they were right. We were way off. When he returns, 
we will appear with him in glory for all to see. We will be vindicated. They can mock us now. They can laugh at us. They can call us old-fashioned and say, get with the times. The times have changed. Change your views on gender and marriage, etc., etc. Call us what you want. But when Jesus appears, Paul says, you also will appear with him in glory. That'll flabbergast the socks off you too if you let it. On that day, God will award to us the crown of righteousness because we are in union with his son, the king. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness will be placed on your head. And you've been crowning other things king in your life. People and situations and circumstances, you've been crowning them king, giving them power, instead of turning your eyes to Jesus. And on that final day, Jesus, the righteous judge, knowing all of your sin, knowing how you failed him repeatedly, when he comes back in glory, for all the world to see, for our culture to see, he will crown you with the crown of righteousness, his righteous life given to you. Paul says he will award that to us on that day. And not, Paul says not only me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Let me ask you this morning. Do you love his appearing? Do you long for him to come back? You see, what you think about, dream about, do you want him to come back? He could come back today. I hope he does. Do you love him? Can you say with Asaph from Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Remember, the more we meditate on his crazy, dazzling, forgiving love for us, the more our love will be stirred for him. If you've lost your first love this morning, and you know you've drifted from Jesus. Hey, don't panic. You want to come back today? God loves, God gives us fresh starts all the time. Gives us fresh starts every day, doesn't he? Maybe you've drifted. Maybe your heart's drifted from your first love. You don't know how you get it back? You meditate on his crazy, dazzling, forgiving love for you. And that will begin to stir in your heart those affections that you have for him. So keep your eyes on Jesus if you want to keep from going crazy. Meditate on his crazy, dazzling, forgiving love for you, and your heart will be stirred toward him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you haven't promised us a stormless life, a hassle free life our life void of pain, but you have promised to give us perfect peace right in the middle of any anxiety-producing, fear-fueling, anger-igniting seasons of life. And so we say thank you, and then we say bring on, bring it on. Bring on your peace, Lord. We need it. Like your grace, we don't achieve your peace, but we receive it. You give it to us, and you keep us in it.
We are being kept, Lord. Nothing is able to take us from your hand, to separate us from your love, or to sabotage out your will for us. You hold us fast, so we ask you, Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning, help us keep our eyes on Jesus. We say thank you for loving us with such a crazy, dazzling, forgiving love.